Good evening and welcome to the fifth presentation in the Joseph K. McLaughlin Lecture Series. For those of you who don't know, I'm David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of Cato. Um, the McLaughlin Lecture Series recognizes Dr. Joe McLaughlin's um, support for Cato, his scientific accomplishments, and the range of his intellectual interests. Uh, the diverse speakers in this series have reflected his broad interests in science, technology, economics, and more. Uh, I want to thank Joe's wife, Jean, and his daughter, Allison, for uh, their support of this series. And what better place for a discussion of a broad range of important topics than the Hayek Auditorium, named for a scholar who wrote books on economics, political theory, law, psychology, and the methodology of the social sciences. Our McLaughlin lecturer today also studies social institutions with the tools of multiple disciplines. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Christakis became internet famous four years ago when he was surrounded by angry students at Yale, uh, jeered and denounced because his wife, also a Yale professor, had written that Yale students were capable of choosing their own Halloween costumes. But he chose not to dwell on that day or to become a traveling troubadour of campus speech problems. Instead, he went back to his laboratory and continued the work that has brought him international acclaim. He is Sterling Professor, Yale's highest honor, of Social and Natural Science, Director of the Human Nature Lab, and Co-Director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. He was elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 2006, the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 2010, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2017. In 2009, he was named Time Magazine's uh, annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. He has studied and conducted experiments relating to maternal and child health in developing countries, human social interactions, social genomics, the microbiome, and artificial intelligence. But what attracted our attention in particular was his latest book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. In the book, he argues that for too long, the scientific community has been overly focused on the dark side of our biological heritage, our capacity for tribalism, violence, selfishness, and cruelty. He examines how a process of natural selection has favored people prone to friendship, cooperation, and love. And of course, many of us would argue that the most important uh, institution of cooperation is the market, so it's good to know that we are wired for that kind of cooperation. Please welcome Professor Nicholas Christakis. You know, my mother died when I was um, 25. And she was 47. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I, I wish she could have been alive for that introduction. She would, it would have made her blush. Um, so, um, in fact, as David said in that very kind introduction, for too long, in my view, not only the scientific community, but the person on the street has been overly focused on the dark side of our nature, you know, our, our propensity for mendacity or, or selfishness or tribalism or violence or cruelty. And the bright side has been denied the attention it deserves. Because equally, we are capable of and prone to love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and all these wonderful qualities and in fact, our species has evolved to be good. And these good qualities 
have necessarily outweighed the bad qualities, or we wouldn't be living socially in the first place. If every time I came near you, you told me falsehoods, you filled me with lies about the environment, uh, or you were mean to me, or you killed me, I would be better off living apart from you in a kind of solitary fashion. So the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs. They did outweigh the costs. And our species, in fact, has evolved a particular kind of such society. Now, we evolved not only to live in groups uh, the way, uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, you know, um, the way, for example, uh, zebras or, or crocodiles or ants might live in groups. We evolved to live in societies equipped with very particular set of innate capacities that govern how we interact with each other in particular ways rather than merely massing together. And we manifest this social ability very early in life. Many have argued, for instance, that one of the primary functions of play in childhood is simply to prepare us for living together. In fact, most play in children is social play. Well, what kind of evidence might we use to figure out what kind of social order comes naturally to us? What kind of social order are we universally predisposed to make? If you were a mad scientist, and I've been called that sometimes, what, uh, what you would ideally want to do is to take a group of babies who had never been taught anything and uh, take them to a faraway island and abandon them there and somehow have them raise themselves on their own. You know, you would provide food and stuff and come back 20 years later and sort of see what kind of social order did they make for themselves. Now, of course, we can't, we can't do such an experiment. It's impossible. It's cruel and unethical. And it's been called the forbidden experiment. But this hasn't stopped people from thinking about such an experiment for a very long time. It's been contemplated and attempted by various monarchs who have typically been interested in the origins of human language. So they've said, well, what kind of language is innate to us? What kind of language would humans speak if they were never taught a language? And for example, Herodotus talks about how Samtic I asked this question. And, uh, and later, James IV of Scotland in the 16th century asked this question. And, and, and what they typically did is, is they took a couple of babies and they gave them to a mute shepherd to raise up in the mountains. And then they came back decades later to see what kind of language did they speak. James IV frames this as a religious question. He's curious, what kind of language did Adam and Eve speak? And allegedly in that experiment, when, when uh, the babies were visited as adults, they spoke passable Hebrew, was the conclusion of that experiment. Anyway, we obviously cannot do such an experiment. And so, um, so I was looking for opportunities to do natural experiments of this variety. What might be some proxies for such an experiment? And I considered a number of ideas for natural experiments. For example, shipwrecks, where groups of people were thrown together without intending it, and now suddenly they had before them the challenge of organizing themselves in some way. What, what way would a group of people oblige to establish social order? What, what, what kind of social order would they establish? And I looked at over 9,000 shipwrecks that occurred between 1500 and 1900 during the European exploration of the Earth. I also looked at a very tiny literature on Asian shipwrecks. I won't go into that right now, but the, the Chinese Navy didn't sail far from, uh, wasn't often stranded because when they were stranded, they were quickly reunited with a host population. Anyway, I was able to identify 20 shipwrecks where at least 19 people were stranded for at least two months. And I got all available written records of these shipwrecks. 
and all archaeological excavations, evidence from modern excavations, to try to understand what kind of social order did they make for themselves. And one particularly powerful pair of cases, I won't go into all the cases right now, but one particularly powerful pair of cases was in 1864 in the South Auckland Islands, north of, uh, south of New Zealand, north of Antarctica, there were two shipwrecks at the same time on the same island on different parts of the island. On the northern part of the island, the Invraco wrecks with 19 men who are washed ashore. Their, their ship is broken to atoms, they said, within hours. And on the southern part of the island, the Grafton wrecks, and five men make it ashore. And these wrecks have very different trajectories. On the Grafton, all five of them survive for two years and eventually make it off the island. And on the Inverco, all but three of them die, and those three are rescued and make it off the island. And there's an interesting story, which I tell in the book, about how and why that came to be. But one of the things that was very distinctive about these two wrecks is the following. When the Grafton wrecks, the captain had a fever and was in his cabin, very sick. And, uh, and the crew wrecks, and the, the shipwrecks, and four of the men make it to shore, and they decide they're not going to abandon the captain. They're not going to let him drown. And they set up a rope line at great personal risk to themselves from the shore to the wreck, and they ferry the captain uh, through the surf onto the beach. On the northern part of the island, on the Inverco, uh, when the Inverco wrecks, 19 men make it ashore. One of them is injured, and they're at the foot of this big cliff. And they spend three days there. They only had a little bit of two pounds of hard tack, two pounds of salt pork, a pencil, and some matches. They light a fire with the matches. And then almost comically, like that you might see in a, in a cartoon, uh, they put the remaining matches that are wet near the fire to dry. Where, and they all ignite. <laughs> they lose all their matches. Anyway, they get one fire started. And, uh, and after three days, they decide that they're, they have to leave where they are and they leave the injured man behind to die. Very different beginnings, very different sequences unfold at the same time on the same island, almost a perfect natural experiment. Now, of course, it wasn't pleasant being a subject in these unintentional natural experiments. This is the crew of the Grafton ferrying the captain ashore. Uh, the, 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 uh, the plates in the original book from the 1870s is, are magnificent. Uh, and this is a little hut that they made for themselves where they lived for two years, uh, and they engaged in quite a number of interesting activities. Um, but I also looked at intentional communities, such as 19th century communes in the United States, where people deliberately set out to remake society, possibly in, in a new way. We have records of this going back to Roman times. For thousands of years, people have been saying, society is screwed up. We're going to like go and start again and make society from scratch on our own. And we have examples of this for quite a long time. Uh, and I looked at Shakers and other communitarian movements, and uh, at 20th century communes as well, uh, and at kibbutzes during the 20th century, uh, and at scientific settlements uh, in Antarctica. Every year for about 10 months, a group of 30 scientists in our pole on the South Station winter over. No one comes in or out for the whole winter. How do they organize themselves? What, what, kind, of, what kind of rules for living together uh, do they implement? And I looked at online worlds as well. You would think that in the 21st century, we can create societies online. We are freed from our corporal bodies. 
when we can make any kind of society we want, in principle, what kind of society do we make? What fundamental principles guide how we organize ourselves? And in many other examples, such as nuclear subcrews, Latin American prisons, miners stranded deep underground for a year, you know, in the Chilean mine, how did those men organize themselves? And communities formed by displaced persons in the wake of natural disasters, where all of a sudden everyone is thrown together, how do they organize themselves? And finally, I looked at experiments that we've done in my lab where we have invented some software that allows us to create temporary artificial societies of real people. This software creates a virtual laboratory. It's integrated with online labor markets. Over 30,000 unique people have come into our online lab, and we, in this godlike way, organize them and test various kinds of ideas about what social order is optimal. For example, we've done experiments with economic inequality, taking a fixed amount of money and giving it to the subjects. Sometimes everyone gets the same, sometimes people get a little bit different, sometimes they get a lot different. How does the inequality, which we experimentally create, change the way they organize themselves? And so I've done many such experiments as well. And what I found, looking at all of this stuff, is that there are some deep and fundamental principles that constrain us to only one way of being social. And I'd like to illustrate this by reference to a very famous example known as the world of all possible shells. Because in the 1960s, paleontologist David Raup became fascinated by shell morphology and whether it was possible to unify the world of shells into a single equation. And he devised the following way of thinking about it, which had, was hugely influential within zoology, of arraying shells in a three-dimensional space that he called a morphospace. So he'd imagine that there were three axes, shown on the x, y, and z axes here, and that you would compute a parameter for each shell, all three of those parameters, and then you would position the shells in this cube to see how filled was the cube, for example. On the y-axis, here shown as the distance from the curve from the axis, he computed how rapidly did the coil of the shell wheel away from the central axis, like a coil of stamps that's tightly wound or loosely wound. On the uh, x-axis, uh, he computed something he called the translation rate, which is how rapidly did the opening of the shell translate up and down the axis like a slinky. Is it a compact slinky or is it a loose slinky? And on the z-axis, he computed something known as the expansion rate, which is that the, the hole that the animal lives in, is it like a, 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 a cylinder, a, a constant diameter as you move from the opening into the depths of the shell, or does it get narrow like a cone, and at what rate does it get narrow? And it turns out you can compute those three for all the shells, and then you can plot where they are found in this three-dimensional space. And the point of the exercise is that of all possible shells, that could ever have existed, only some have come into existence, those shown in the light gray portion of this cube. So many types of shells that were theoretically conceivable, nevertheless, never have existed. Well, imagine that we define similar axes for human societies or for animal societies, these different animal species. For example, how friendly are the societies? How common is it for unrelated individuals to help each other out? How cooperative are the societies? How unequally are resources distributed in these human or animal societies? Or how hierarchical are the societies? Is there no hierarchy? Is there a lot of hierarchy? Is there some intermediate level of hierarchy? And if you did that, either with animal species or, for now, with different human societies, 
what you would find is that of all observed societies, they only occupied a small part of this theoretical morphospace. The question is why? Why is social order so consistent from place to place? And the answer is natural selection. And in fact, the key capacities that we humans have that universally characterize our societies and that we need so as to be able to form a functional society are these eight qualities that I call the social suite. Identity, love, friendship, networks, cooperation, in-group bias or in-group preference, mild hierarchy, and teaching. I call these the social suite. These are genetically encoded attributes shaped by natural selection that we express among ourselves, not as isolated individuals. Human nature also equips us with other qualities, for example, curiosity, but you can express curiosity on your own. Whereas love or cooperation or hierarchy is not something you express on your own, you express it in relation to other people. So these are qualities that require the presence of others in order to be manifest. These traits are, are uh, and, and so the point is, is that they are adaptively useful, even crucial for making a society. And indeed, natural selection has shaped not just the structure and function of our bodies, not just the structure and function of our, of our minds, and hence our behaviors, but natural selection has shaped the structure and function of our societies. And these traits are universal. They are seen in every society. Let me give you, review some of them uh, in the time I have with you today. One of the greatest paradoxes about mammalian social life is that the capacity to be a distinctive individual is actually an essential predicate for living socially. The deep irony is that our individuality is required for us to actually live with each other. The capacity or the ability to express and to recognize individuality only evolves when it's beneficial. And these two capacities are actually extremely rare in the animal kingdom. If you do not want others to attack you mistakenly or to forget that they had sex with you or to provide parental care to a different baby and not you and therefore neglect you, or to neglect to repay your kindness, then it is advantageous to have some way of signaling, this is me, not someone else, and to have the other person recognize that signal. In other words, social interactions require that we have the ability to communicate our individuality. And in our species, we use our faces for this purpose. Have you asked your, ever asked yourself, why do all our faces look different? Why do we not all just have a human face? Or like maybe we could have a female face and a male face, or like an adult face and a youthful face, and then just transition. We all have the same faces as we're kids, and then we become adults, and we all have a new adult face, like, like birds changing plumage as they transition from youthful birds to grown-up birds. No, we all have different faces. Although, even though we all have different faces, we all have kidneys that work the same in principle. That is to say, an ideal kidney to do its job, all of us have the same kidney. But an ideal face to do its job, we all have different faces. And not only do we have different faces, but I can look out at you and I can tell the difference between all of you. So I have this cognitive capacity to distinguish one face from another. This is also an evolutionary luxury. Both of those, the ability to signal our identity and the ability to detect it in others, are evolutionary luxuries. They are uncommon in the animal kingdom and yet universal in us. And this comes about in part because, that, because of the fact that variation in one trait in our face, for example, nose width and nose height or ear shape 
or cheekbone angle and so on is completely independent of variation in other traits. In other words, any given trait in our face is independent of every other trait in our faces, and so therefore endlessly recombinable to give all of these unique faces. So for example, if you look at hands on the left, if you measure in this group of humans, I forgot, it's some large group of people, if you measure the length of their hand and the width of their hand, you find that as the hand gets longer, it also gets wider, right? There's a correlation of one trait from another trait, and so there's non-independence of those two traits. But if you measure, for example, in the same humans, the width of their nose from their height of the nose, there's no relationship between those two measures. Because you want noses to have many different kinds of noses. You don't want the two traits to be correlated with each other. If they're uncorrelated, you get more different kinds of combinations that allow you to communicate your distinctive individuality. And in fact, new research has revealed the great genotypic variability that underlies our facial phenotypes. The regions of our genome that are responsible for the kind of faces we have are very variable, uh, in a way similar actually to our immune system, which is also very variable, or our olfactory system, which also has similar variability. Anyway, the point is this, this, the, the genetics of our facial uniqueness are increasingly being worked out. Love is another universal trait. Our species is very unusual among mammals in that we don't just have sex with our mates, we bond with them. We form a sustained emotional attachment to them. We love them. And love is not essential for mating, well, usually, uh, but, but we do it anyway. And, and we do it in part because it helps us to raise our young. Okay, so we evolve this capacity to form a sentimental attachment to our partners in ways I describe in the book. It's maybe different for men and women. There's some theories about this, so sort of interesting. But anyway, we do this because it enhances our ability to raise our young. And so even though marriage systems vary around the world, as shown here, and it can include monogamy and polygyny and, poly and polyandry and other sorts of ways of, of mating, this fundamental fact about bonding and love does not vary wherever you go. In fact, even in societies with arranged marriages, where love is seen as askance, the idea that you would let young teenagers, for example, pick their partners based on who they love strikes people who have norms of arranged marriage as ridiculous. That's not the proper foundation for a healthy society to let teenage lust guide who you fall in love with and which partners you pick. So they think. But even in those societies, while love before marriage is seen as dangerous and to be avoided, love after marriage is seen as much desired and universally present. So even in societies with arranged marriage, love is a key fundamental part of the relationships between uh, intimate partners. Now, we don't just mate with each other, we also befriend each other. As I already mentioned, we humans are unusual as a species in that we form long-term non-reproductive unions with other unrelated individuals. Namely, we have friends. And this is seen in every society. And in fact, the key attributes of friendship are also quite consistent around the world. And they include, for example, mutual aid. We help our friends. This is seen as a very normal thing about friendships wherever you go. Or we have positive affect when we're with our friends. We evolve that kind of warm feeling when we're in the company of our friends. Why? Why do you feel good when you're with your friends? 
Were you taught to feel good? Or do you just innately have evolved to feel good when you're with your friends? Why would you happily make an anonymous donation to your friends that they would never know about? But you would be happy to know that you had anonymously contributed this benefit to your friends. And other traits as well that characterize friendship. Now my lab has fanned out around the world to study friendship and distinctly to map the social networks that friendships give rise to. For example, in one paper that we did, we compiled a photographic census of, of the Hadza. The Hadza uh, live like, there are only about a thousand of them left. They live around Lake Ayasi in Tanzania. They live like all humans did uh, in, during the, up to the Pleistocene. They hunt and they gather for their food. They live in our ancestral environment. We made a photographic census of all living adult Hadza, and my postdoc, Karen Apicella, went into the field and uh, it took these posters that we printed with all the photographs, and she would just sit there by the someplace and wait for like a Hadza person to go by, because like you can't make an appointment with a Hadza person, and uh, and she would like wait a week, and then someone would walk by. She excuse me, who are your friends? And they would point to their friends. Thank you, and off they would go, and then she'd like wait another week, and then another person would walk by. Excuse me, who are your friends? And so we painstakingly mapped the social networks of the Hadza. And what we found was that their patterns of friendship, their mathematical patterns of friendship and social interaction are just like contemporary modern societies living in the industrialized world. Despite the fact that in the intervening 10,000 years, we've invented agriculture, we've invented cities, we've invented telecommunications, the deep mathematical structure of human networks and the friendship behaviors are indistinguishable in us compared to the Hadza. And in fact, my lab has asked people to identify their friends in a number of ways, and we've mapped social networks in many places. In villages everywhere we find, again and again, that the mathematical structure of networks is the same. In these images, every dot is a person, every line represents a friendship or a social relationship between two people, and whether you look at villages in Honduras, as we've done, or India, as we've done, or Uganda, as we've done, for instance, the mathematical structure of social interactions is the same. There is a startling consistency and universality to network structure. But very pertinently, however, elephants and dolphins also have friendships. And their networks look very similar to ours, mathematically speaking. This is an elephant social network, where every dot is an elephant, and the relationships represent elephant friendships. And our last known ancestor in common with elephants was 85 million years ago, was a small shrew-like animal that uh, did not live socially. But still, elephants make friends and networks in very similar ways to ourselves. Natural selection has independently come up with this uncommon practice. We have friends, certain other primates have friends, elephants have friends, and certain cetaceans have friends. It's pretty much it. There are other types of social order, the eusocial insects, you know, the termites and the wasps and the bees, those are clones, so those are not friends because it's like being a friend to yourself, it's like your genetic identical twin in those animals. And uh, whereas we're talking about friendships with unrelated individuals, we're not talking about kin relationships. And um, it's not like the organization you might find, for example, in wolf packs or herding animals or, or, or other swarming creatures uh, in, in uh, the vertebrate order, in, in vertebrates. Anyway, so we've independently come up with this, uh, qual uh, this ability. And this is known, as many of you probably know, as convergent evolution. When organisms independently evolve to be similar, uh, solving similar challenges in similar ways. 
These two cute creatures shared a common ancestor 200 million years ago was their last common ancestor. That looked nothing like this, and yet they independently evolved in such similar ways in our recent past. So on the left, you have an echidna, uh, a, uh, a monotreme found in Australia, and on the right, you have a hedgehog, which you know, is found in lots of places. And, um, and they independently evolved to have these very similar physical features, but it's not, but it's not limited in that way. This observation about convergent evolution of friendships and social networks leads us to another paradox. Because to the extent that we resemble animals in our propensity for friendship or other traits like our capacity for cooperation, we gain insight into our common humanity. So the irony is that when we find that we share qualities with animals, we realize how much we share it with each other. Because if we can share the capacity for friendship with animals, surely we share it universally with humans around the world. So if you go out and you find, oh my goodness, they cooperate, or they teach each other, as I'll come in a moment, or, or they have mild hierarchy, or they love each other, for example, or have a sentimental attachment beyond one breeding episode, uh, then we can say, oh my god, this is a, a universal that we can also observe in human populations. Now, the actual structure of networks uh, that we make also matters for our life experience. Um, if you think about these two objects, that as you all, you know, these are familiar everyday objects, and as you all uh, learned in high school chemistry, uh, these objects are both made of carbon. And on the left, you have graphite, which is soft and dark, and on the right, you have diamond, which is hard and clear. And there are two key intellectual ideas here. First of all, these properties of softness and darkness and hardness and clearness are not properties of the carbon atoms. They're properties of the collection of carbon atoms. Second, which properties you get depends on how you connect the carbon atoms to each other. Take the carbon atoms and connect them one way, you get one set of properties. Take the same carbon atoms and, and assemble them another way, you get a different set of properties. And similarly, it's the pattern of our connections that affects the properties of our social groups. It's the ties between people that make the whole greater than the sum of its parts. New properties, such as, such as cooperation, can emerge because of the connections, because of the ties between people, and not necessarily because of the people themselves. So it's not just what's happening in the people around us, for example, whether they are spreading fake news or, or they are you know, uh, using drugs or, or are being studious at school or shopping for particular products. It's not just what they're doing or what's happening in them that matters. The actual structure of the network, the actual way that a group is organized can affect the properties of the group in a way that in turn affects the fitness advantages of the individuals within them. So our experience of the world depends on the actual structure of the networks and the ties around us near and far. And in fact, these properties of softness and darkness and hardness and clearness, the example of, of carbon, those are ordinarily thought of as emergent properties of a system. We can think of social structures similarly as having emergent properties. And social order, which we are pre-wired to make, matters. Now this phenomenon of emergence, which itself is a deep and interesting um, philosophical and scientific observation about the world, has other consequences. Because what it means is that the social suite 
has come to be shaped by natural selection in a variety of ways as a result. The argument is that we make these intricate social worlds for ourselves, and these worlds, in turn, affect us as much as we affect them. Now, one set of ideas about the mechanism for this relates to notions of what I call an exophenotype, whereby genes guide an animal to create things outside its body. When I first had this idea, and I'll describe it to you in just a moment, about 10 years ago, I, was, I remember I was in a hotel room at, uh, at, um, in Virginia, at the University of Virginia, and it was the night of the election, the uh, Bush v. Gore uh, election. And everyone else was obsessed, of course, with the election, but I was obsessed with this idea because I was struck by how magnificent it was. And I thought, oh my God, this is great. You know, I could spend 20 years of my life researching this. And then very rapidly, I discovered that Richard Dawkins had had a similar idea uh, <laughs> like, like 20 years earlier. And I was really depressed uh, initially. He published a book called The Extended Phenotype. But our idea of an, of an exophenotype is a little different. And we've also been doing experiments and collecting data to support uh, these claims. So let me, let me explain to you what I'm talking about here. Consider a beaver dam, what you see here. A beaver is programmed to make a dam, just like a beaver is programmed to have a tail that's flat, its body is affected by gene, its genes and natural selection, or to have a particular behaviors, like it slaps its tail you know, on the water, and that's genetically programmed and shaped by natural selection. Uh, so the, the natural selection shapes the beaver's body and shapes the beaver's behavior, but it also has the beaver shape its environment. The beaver makes something outside its body. It must make that thing outside its body. Beavers aren't taught to make dams. They make dams innately, and they make particular kinds of dams. But once they do that, the beaver changes its environment. Because of the genes within the beaver, the beaver does something which changes its environment. And now that that environment is changed, that beaver must live in this new environment. So for example, it dams a little creek, which makes a pond. And it does that so it increases the, the perimeter of the pond, which gives it more foraging opportunities. It can swim underwater and find more things to eat, safely swimming underwater. But now beavers, subsequent generations of beavers that have bigger lungs survive better in bigger ponds. So the beaver, by changing its environment, has reshaped the trajectory of its evolution. In other words, they make a dam, which makes a bigger lake, and a bigger lake means beavers with bigger lungs survive, and then beavers with bigger lungs can then build bigger dams. So you get this feedback loop where the animal has within it a, a property which modifies its environment, makes something outside its body, which then feeds back and selects a particular kind of animal for the same dam building property or some other property, like lung capacity property. Well, analogously, humans have evolved to manipulate the social world around us. Instead of knitting sticks together to build a dam, we knit people together to make social networks. We modify the social world around us, and this in turn makes certain types of genes more advantageous than others, creating a feedback loop across evolution. Friendly people make friendly worlds, who in turn do better in friendly worlds. And same with cooperative people. We make particular kinds of social worlds, and those who do well in such social worlds grow more numerous, as do their genes. So once we set down the path of living socially and constructing these environments, we make hospitable environments for the kinds of people who can make such environments and live well in such environments, just like the beaver dam, and it feeds upon itself. And interestingly, when elephants independently set down on the same path, they create the same kinds of societies. 
because there's one solution to the problem of living socially. You gotta be nice to the people who are not your kin. You can't just be nice to your kin. Otherwise, we would live in family units. We have to learn to live with each other, be friendly with unrelated individuals. Now, the traits that make up the social suite are mutually supportive. Many of these play a role in the others. For example, identity is crucial, as I alluded to, for love and friendship. You have to love and befriend particular people. Friendship is really, and networks are really important for cooperation. I didn't talk about in-group preference. We can discuss that later, but that also plays a role. Mild hierarchy is another thing I didn't discuss. We humans don't make purely egalitarian societies. We actually don't do well in purely egalitarian societies, but nor do we want extreme hierarchy either. We don't like that or do well in that either. We like mild hierarchy. And finally, teaching. Teaching is actually a crucial uh, property of, uh, in the animal kingdom. Now, I want to say a few words about teaching because it lies at the root of our capacity for culture, and it's deeply fundamental and important to us. Now, most animals can learn. A little fish in the sea can learn that if it swims up to the light, it'll find food there that it can, it can eat. And, uh, but some animals learn socially. And this is very efficient. So, so you put your hand in the fire, you know, and by independent learning, you learn that it burns. So you've acquired some knowledge, fire burns, but you've paid a price, you, know, you have a burnt hand, okay? I can watch you put your hand in the fire and I can acquire almost as much knowledge for none of the price. That's really super efficient. Or I watch you eat red berries and you die. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't eat red berries. That's like really efficient, right? I don't have to die in order to acquire that knowledge. I can just copy you or imitate you or observe you. That's social learning. This also happens in many animals, but it's much, much rarer than independent uh, learning. But we don't just engage with social learning. We teach each other things. I teach you to build a fire. This is exceptionally rare in the animal kingdom, this affirmative teaching. It's actually a kind of altruism. I pay a price and teach you something. I'm giving away knowledge, uh, as it were. And it allows us, to, this ability allows us to cumulatively create and store knowledge and transmit it across time and place. It allows us to be cultural animals, in other words. And the knowledge we transmit across time and place in the form of teaching is a fundamental driver of economic growth. So think about this. On the day you were born, you inherited all the knowledge that had ever been created by anyone else in the past. All the animals that had already been domesticated, they were there. You didn't have to re-domesticate sheep and cattle. Someone else had done that. All the knowledge about the stars and how to navigate by the stars, that was yours because you were born. It was a capital asset that was transferred to you. Or, or, or calculus, the calculus that you learned in high school that Newton invented 400 years ago. Incidentally, Isaac Newton invented the calculus at the rate at which we are taught it. In a year, he invents the calculus and then keeps it private for 20 years as his own personal mathematics. It's just mind-boggling. Anyway, now you, just, you can teach a 12-year-old calculus if they're smart enough, or a 16-year-old, or most of you were tortured learning calculus in high school. It's just given to you, right? So the point is, is that by virtue of being born today, we inherit all this capital, all this knowledge that's given to us, which allows us to be more productive, which allows us to do things because when we expend a unit of effort, we're doing it with this asset, which is the knowledge that has been accumulated and transmitted across time and across place. This capacity for teaching that we have is fundamental. It's seen in all societies. It's a universal uh, in human beings. And in turn, this shapes us even more. 
Our genes affect our capacity for culture, and our culture affects our genes. Now, this is a further distinct idea than the sort of innate formation of social networks and exophenotypes I mentioned a moment ago. It sounds similar, but it's not. In the exophenotype idea, the thing that we make, like the beaver dam or the social network, is, a, is, a, is encoded in our genes, the actual thing, okay? But in culture, that thing is not encoded. For example, whether you make igloos or stone huts is not, there's no genes for making an igloo or a stone hut, okay? It's a cultural, it's our capacity for knowledge that then endows us with this cultural trait, and then that cultural trait can also, it turns out, shape our evolution. Now, the best example we have of this for how macrohistorical developments could affect our genes is the evolution of lactose tolerance in adults. Now, many of you probably haven't thought about this, but, but it turns out that lactose is a, is a sugar in milk, and lactase is an enzyme that we have that allows us to digest lactose. Now, in the ancestral environment, up until about 10,000 years ago, human beings had this enzyme lactase only when they were babies. And then when they transitioned to being older children, they no longer had the enzyme lactase and the capacity to digest milk. Why? Why not? Because there was no milk in the environment. When you were weaned, you never drank milk again. You never encountered milk as a foodstuff ever again. So all human beings until about 10,000 years ago uh, were lactose intolerant as adults. And then what happens? Between three and 9,000 years ago, on multiple occasions, human beings, because of culture, because of teaching, independently domesticate animals. And once they domesticate animals, now all of a sudden there's milk in the environment. And that milk, is being able to digest that milk, is extremely advantageous. It provides another source of calories that no one else could. If you can eat and drink milk as an adult, that's great. And other people can't. That's good. You have a mutation that allows you, that keeps your lactase working into adulthood. You can digest a lactose as an adult and out-survive out other people. And also a source of hydration. If the water gets spoiled or is, is full of germs and everyone else is falling sick and dying, but you can drink milk and stay hydrated, you survive. So what happened as a result of this, on multiple occasions between three and 9,000 years ago, because of human inventions, populations that were near domesticated animals, goats, sheep, camels, cows, etc., uh, developed a tolerance for lactose, and those genes spread in those populations and are not seen in nearby populations that did not adopt a herding lifestyle, to the point where now half the population of the planet can digest lactose into adulthood. So something that we learn to do changes the course of our evolution. The people that are alive today have different genes, allelic variants, different types of genes, than they would have had had we not done this thing. Well, once you accept this, and this is true, what I'm telling you, it opens up whole other ideas. For example, maybe we are all smarter because we invented cities. About 8,000 years ago, we invent cities. I'm not saying, I'm often misunderstood, I'm not saying that urban people are smarter than rural people. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that human beings that live in a world in which cities exist are different than the kinds of human beings that would have lived in a world in which cities did not exist. It takes a different kind of person to be able to survive in a city, whether it's due to population density, due to the cognitive demands of city life versus rural life, and so forth. Or maybe the fact that we invented uh, glasses, maybe we're all more myopic because of medieval lens grinders. I would have been dead 
you know, a thousand years ago. I would have been eaten by a lion or fallen off a cliff, but now I can survive because of this and pass on my myopic genes to my children. So maybe, you know, a thousand or two thousand years from now, we will all be more myopic. I'm quite sure that is the case. And there are many amazing examples of this, which I, I discuss in Blueprint. Some of the more powerful examples have to do with the invention of modern medical technologies. We are inventing technologies that are keeping people alive, as well we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this and let people die. But I am saying that because of the invention of effective medicine, only in the last 100 years or so, we are changing the course of our evolution. Same with climate change. To the extent that climate change is anthropogenic, the people that are facing the dilemmas of living in this world a thousand years from now are going to be different because of what we have done to the environment. Now, there are a number of applications of these ideas about how, um, how we have evolved to make societies. For instance, we humans have begun to modify our social systems with artificial uh, intelligence. We are increasingly adding machines, such as driverless cars, and autonomous agents, such as online bots, to our social systems. And these machines will act in human-like ways on a level playing field as if they were human in what I call hybrid systems. These hybrid systems of humans and machines offer opportunities for a new kind of social artificial intelligence. This AI might act socially or might also actually affect our social organization. One of my favorite toy examples of this is the following example. The manufacturers of Alexa make the Alexa device so that it's appealing to you to buy. Okay, so the device is a very obedient device. You don't have to say, excuse me, Alexa, I'm sorry to interrupt you. If you could please do me a favor, uh, would you play this music uh, at the moment? No, you just give the Alexa an order. And nor would, they, nor would the manufacturer of the device try to have the device obey all these social niceties because you might not buy it. It's so irritating. I have to be so patient with this damn machine. I just want it to do what I'm telling it to do. Fine and dandy, and many people assess the human-machine interactions. There are lots of labs around the country that are doing that. How do we optimize the machines, you know, the uncanny valley and all of these other ideas? But that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the following problem. You buy an Alexa and you put it in your house, and your children are rude to it. And they learn to be rude. And they go to the playground, and they're rude to other children. So the addition of this machine in our midst is affecting how we treat each other. It's the human-human interactions that I care about when we add these forms of artificial intelligence, which are cultural creations, into our midst. Or consider autonomous vehicles. Right now, when you, when you buy an autonomous vehicle, if the manufacturer told you, you know, if the car sees that you're about to hit someone, it's going to swerve and crash, and you will die rather than that person. You're like, you know, I don't want to buy your car. I'll go buy another manufacturer's vehicle. So all the focus is on the, the interaction between the machine and the human occupant. But that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in when you add these machines to our midst, how does it affect how we interact with each other? So right now, the manufacturers make these devices, the autonomous vehicles, so that they drive in a very steady way. Because if you were buying such a car, and I told you, you could buy a jerky autonomous vehicle that was like, you know, you know, braking and accelerating randomly, you'd say, I don't want that car. I'll take this guy's car, which is a nice smooth flow down the highway. But now, you driving your smooth car down the highway, I'm driving behind you, and I get lulled into a sleepy, false sense of security. Because you haven't done a damn thing but just drive smoothly, because you're an autonomous vehicle. And then I veer off, and I go to another part of the highway that has just humans, and because of my inattentiveness, I collide with another vehicle. 
So you are causing more collisions. The addition of this device into our midst is affecting how we interact with each other. Maybe we would want the car to have some jerky motion to keep the human drivers on the highway alert. So my argument is, and in fact, in one ex we've done many experiments with this, and in one particular experiment, we were able to add bots to online groups of humans, and we showed how the bots could make it easier for groups of humans to work together by helping them to overcome friction in their efforts to coordinate their actions. So many of our experiments take the form of, look, this group of people is struggling to work together. What if we add a few bots to the system that work in special ways? Can we get this group of people to be better? Can we play to their strengths? Can we foster aspects of the social suite? And in fact, my argument is that hybrid systems will need to respect the social suite if we are to work together for a utopian rather than dystopian future. Okay, I'm gonna close with one final interconnected set of ideas. Because our focus on the social origins of goodness and these traits that I've been describing to you, I would defend very fiercely that love and cooperation and teaching and friendship are good. Uh, I invite you to take the opposite stance. Um, I would argue that, that this, this focus on the social origins of goodness highlights something else. Because most human virtues are social. Now, there are some that are not. For example, you can be brave. Bravery is a virtue. You can be brave on your own against an animal or against the wilderness, for example. But most of our virtues are social, and they arise from the investments in the lives of others. We do not care very much if you love yourself or are kind to yourself or are just to yourself. We care whether you love others or are kind to others or are just to others. And in fact, this is a crucial aspect of our virtues. So I'd like to close with one final idea. What accounts for our species' general success in living together in the face of all of our defects and differences? How can we understand the goodness in the social world despite the badness? Now in theology, this is known as a question of theodicy. How is God to be justified in the face of all the evil in the world? Medieval theologians and others have been for a very long time concerned about this. If God is omnipotent and omniscient and beneficent, why is there so much suffering in the world? You know, why do we kill each other? Why, why are we so awful to each other if, if in fact there's a beneficent God? So this is a, a problem of theodicy, of the sort of vindication of God, a, a confidence in the goodness of God despite this evil. Because I believe analogously that we can focus on what I call sociodicy. This is the vindication of our confidence in the virtue of society, despite its numerous failures, so obvious to anyone. And it's in keeping, actually, with a Japanese aesthetic philosophy of wabi-sabi that highlights the flawed beauty in natural and artificial things. So in Western aesthetics and in Western philosophy, beautiful things are symmetrical, or they're flawless, they're perfect. But there's a tradition in Japanese aesthetic philosophy that sees this bowl as beautiful. I actually see this bowl as beautiful. It's a beautiful bowl, despite its flaws, maybe because of its flaws. So for example, in, in Versailles, what kind of topiary do they have? They take these bushes and they prune them to be like perfect pyramids or spheres. And what do the Japanese do? They have bonsai trees, right? Broken, bent trees, which are beautiful, despite their uh, lack of symmetry, despite their imperfections. And I think this is not just idle optimism. Rather, it's the recognition of the fundamental good that lies within us. It's tempting to look at human history as full of abject misery and dysfunction. You can pick any century or millennium, and it's replete with horrors. 
I'm completely aware of the history of colonialism and slavery and pogroms and the Inquisition and warfare and slaughter that has been taking place in our species forever. And of course, there was, but, but despite that, I still feel positive about our species. And there was, of course, a dramatic inflection for the better that occurred in the 18th century with the arrival of the Enlightenment and its philosophical values and scientific discoveries. As Steven Pinker and others have argued, beginning in Europe, primarily uh, because of the technological advances, but also because of the philosophical moves towards seeing human beings as inherently equal to each other and, uh, and commitments to democratic governance, which admittedly were unequally applied initially, but progressively have spread across the world and encompassed more and more people and were alien ideas compared to the predecessors of the Enlightenment. Because of these technological and philosophical moves, life has become longer, richer, freer, and more peaceful. But my argument is that we do not have to rely solely on such recent historical developments to make the world better. What I'm arguing is that more ancient, more powerful, deeper forces are at work propelling a good society. We have been shaped for hundreds of thousands of years to have these wonderful qualities that I'm describing. In short, the arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. Thank you. Should I call them or should you manage? This gentleman in the back there, okay. I'll do crowd management. What an unruly crowd I have tonight. Yes. Uh, the first question concerning your examples of these two shipwrecks uh, near New Zealand. Could you explain what is the main difference between the fates of two societies? What actually made them different? And also maybe related uh, maybe uh, to this particular case, what, from your point of view, the difference, if you remember Anabasis, uh, between Greek society of these goblets and the Persian warriors who were not able to crush them? So the, 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 the Greek illusion is very tempting for me to go down that path, and I'm going to resist that temptation. Uh, the, the shipwreck example, the basic argument in the shipwreck set of like the 20 shipwrecks that I look at is that, that we have these capacities to make a good society, we don't always enact them. For example, I look at the Pitcairn settlement, the mutiny on the bounty, and, the, and they had a, a horrible, you know, kind of, they slaughtered each other. They all killed each other. The issue is when we are able to make a society, it has these features in it. And if we make such a society, it's advantageous. So in the Inverco example, they were unable to cohere. They, did not, they didn't manifest mild hierarchy. They, they did not manifest cooperation. They did not manifest friendship. And as a result, they basically wound up abandoning each other. There was a, an, one unfortunate episode of cannibalism that I didn't go into. So, you know, it didn't work is the argument. And so, so the, whereas the Grafton crew was able to coherently enact all of these capacities that are innate within us. So I need to mention this point. Just because we have these capacities doesn't mean we always enact them. Just like, for example, I might have the capacity to be six feet tall, but if you starve me as a child, you know, if you pr prevent me from enacting that capacity, I, I don't enact it. So there can be, there can be uh, uh, form-fruist societies just like there are form-fruist bodies, for example. Way in the back there with a the beard, yeah. I can hear you if you ask. 
oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to have the guy with the mic run around now. I'm going to be like a squash player. I'm going to put it there, and I'm going to put it here. Thank you. I wonder if you have any comments on Hayek's idea of atavism, um, genetic. I think he agrees with you that we have certain genetic proclivities based on our social evolution in bands. And he thinks that uh, in a modern world, we live in two worlds at once, both the world of the impersonal interaction based on abstract rules and the social intimate order where we know people intimately and closely and we can sympathize with them because we know who they are. And uh, he thinks there can be tensions between these kind of instincts and the, the modern rules. Sorry about that. That there can be these tensions between these instincts and the modern rules that can be atavistic or, or, or problematic and, and out of time. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. So the whole Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft thing, yes. I mean, I think that you know, we have created for ourselves a modern bureaucratic state. Um, we read many of our interactions in the modern world as very alienating and impersonal and even dangerous. Like the fact that I can interact with all of you guys in a role, like I'm an invited speaker and you are here to like hear. And like if, if, if 10,000 years ago, if I was alone in a group of strangers, I might have felt that to be really dangerous and concerning. So um, whereas we've created a society that doesn't necessarily uh, call forth those things. So uh, I mean, to the extent that I'm arguing that we have these innate capacities that are inalienable, that is to say you can't, you can't take them away just by creating a modern society, I, I would agree uh, with Hayek. I, I would say one other thing is, I didn't go into this today because I didn't want to be too political, but many of these qualities that we evolved to have, for example, I talked about identity, friendship, and teaching, you could translate those into uh, you know, individual rights, uh, free expression, I'm sorry, individual rights, freedom of assembly, and free expression, right? Many of the political rights that the Founding Fathers enacted were enacted, in fact, they were seen as natural. You know, the fact that we wanted to have free association was seen as just a part of our nature, and that was, uh, you know, reduced as a constitutional right. Or free expression, to, in order to learn from each other, we have to be able to talk to each other, right? We have, you have to create an environment in which there's free flow of information. So you could actually make some effort, and I did not do this in the book, but you could make some effort to look at some of the things that I've been discussing as being instantiated in, in, in political rights. Anyway, I know I didn't directly address your question with respect to Hayek's particular argument, but I kind of danced around it a little. Yes. Yes, I wondered if you could comment on the models of how our immune system works, and the challenge and the and the and the and the codependency between good and evil. How important it is for evil to exist, for good to prosper. Yes. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I, I, I most frequently face this dilemma with respect to sociopathy. You know, some people believe that, you know, why does sociopathy persist? You know, why do we have people who have no conscience and are very violent among us? Um, and there's some theories about it that have to do with the utility of that phenomenon in, um, in groups. There are many theories about this. It's not the only theory. I'm not sure. I'm not taking a stand on which theory is correct. But it, it, inter it intersects a little bit with your question. Like, is there, do we need evil in order to have goodness? You know, does it, you need the dark side of the force to have the light side of the force, you know? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. But what I can tell you is that in my view, uh, the light side is much more powerful than the dark side. Uh, and, um, and the proof is in the pudding. You know, the fact that we have all these awful tendencies. 
but we have equally been endowed with these capacities that countermand uh, those awful tendencies and constrain them and even, and even uh, direct them uh, at times. In the book, I talk a little bit about intergroup violence, like in-group, like here's another thing that's very depressing to me. Why, why can't we just love our own group? Why do we have to hate other groups? Like why didn't we just evolve to like be neutral about other groups? You know, like I like my guys, they're nice guys, and you know, the other groups, I don't really care about them. Why, why do we have to like slaughter the other groups, right? Why, why do we do this thing? And it's very depressing, you know, very dark. I spent like a year in this dark place thinking about this, about in-group bias. But one of, one of the theories has to do with the utility of um, these ideas in preserving our group when in competition with other groups, like this capacity for unrestrained violence towards others uh, and, a, and a very high affection for our own group may serve a, may, may serve a function in, when there's groups in competition with each other for scarce resources. That sounds like an excellent note on which to end. A very depressing note. Thank you. <laughs>